morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 4 to 13. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came down from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of your scripture. We pray now that you would open our hearts and minds to what you would have to say. Speak to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, if, if you can kind of in your own mind's eye kind of think about all the various pictures, portraits, um, even movies that you've seen that depict the baptism of Jesus, I, kind of get in your mind what, what they generally looked like. Um, my, my experience is most of the pictures of the baptism of Jesus are they're very, they're peaceful scenes, um, very serene. Um, the, the um, you know, you could, a lot of them have blue skies and billowy white clouds. And Jesus is in the water with John the Baptist, and uh, there's a dove often kind of coming down gracefully, uh, alighting itself on, on the head of Jesus. Um, it's all very, very calming, very soothing. Now I want you to think for a few moments about your own baptism, if, if you were baptized uh, when you were old enough that you can remember, or if not, if you were baptized as a child, or if you weren't baptized, I want you to think about those times that you experienced a baptism with someone else. Um, and I want you to kind of, just in your mind's eye, get a picture of what was that like? Was it contentious, or was it calming, peaceful? Um, you know, maybe a little sprinkle of water here, and a little dunking under the water over there. I mean, there are different kinds of ways that that we baptize. After the service, maybe there was a luncheon that you went to, or maybe you had a family gathering, um, like a reception, um, everyone kind of speaking niceties to each other. Um, yeah, we, we hear the words about sins being washed away, but we kind of, right after the baptism, we kind of get on with our lives, kind of move on with the way our lives were pretty much before, before the baptism. All pretty painless, no harm done. 
Now, my question to you is, and obviously I have a, an opinion about this, do you think this is, is this what baptism was meant to be? Do you think that's what is kind of depicted in the Bible, especially when we think about Jesus' baptism? I'd like to suggest that maybe, just maybe, the baptism of Jesus tells us something really important about the meaning of baptism and, and really what its significance is and how it ought to affect our lives. Now, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, paints a very different picture of the baptism of Jesus than what I just described. When Jesus goes to John to be baptized, Jesus is submitting to John's baptism, and John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. It's turning around. Remember, as I told the children, the word repent means literally turn around. And so when John is preaching this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, what he's trying to say to the people is, you come on down into this river, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you under the water because I want to I wanna wash away those sins, and I want you to turn your life around. I want you to repent of all those sins that we're, we're washing down the river. Okay. That's what got John in trouble. His, his baptism. Because you see, what he did is he didn't leave anybody out. And he started shaking his finger at King Herod. And you may recall from either what you know of history or maybe what you've read in the scriptures, but uh, King Herod, if you recall, Herod Antipas, he, he divorced his first wife so that he could marry his sister-in-law, Herodias. And uh, maybe you may recall from some movies that were made that not only did he marry his sister-in-law, which was really kind of anathema for, for John the Baptist, but also he seemed to have an eye for Herodias' daughter, Salome. And in fact, it is actually the daughter of Herodias that really causes uh, Herod to arrest um, John and to behead him because he he makes a promise to uh, to Salome that that whatever she wants he'll he'll fulfill and that's what she wanted so they were kind of in cahoots uh, around this okay John was calling King Herod to repentance he was calling the king to turn around and Herod didn't like to hear that he was none too pleased with these accusations of John. Now, John uses water. He didn't have to use water to call on people to turn around. He didn't have to put them under the water. He could have just said, you need to, he could have just been a prophet that went out in the, in the, in the streets and told everybody, you know, they're going in the wrong direction and, and they need to go in the direction of God. That, he could have done that. But he used water because water was a symbol and is still a symbol of cleansing. And that's why the priests, before they would go into the temple, in the time of Jesus and even before, they would purify themselves. They would, they would cleanse themselves in, in water before they would go into the temple to lead in worship. God was sending a message to the world by having Jesus baptized by John. Because you see, 
Jesus had no sin. Why did he have to turn around? Why did he have to uh, be forgiven of his sins? Well, what what God was saying is by Jesus's participation in this cleansing rite, it was as if God were saying, I'm willing to be where you are. I'm willing to suffer as you suffer. I'm willing to go through your temptations and your trials, and I'm willing to walk among you, to put on human skin, if you will. God was sending this message to the world, and the message didn't end with the water. If you remember from from our scripture lesson this morning, when Jesus came up out of the water, all you know what broke out. (laughs) In verse 10, uh, it says that the heavens were torn apart. The heavens were torn apart. I don't know if that uh, recalls any, you know, if you recall any kind of image in your mind of some other time that something was torn apart. But think about when Jesus died on the cross, when he breathed his last, what happened? Do you remember the veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the people? The Holy of Holies, of course, inside there was the Ark of the Covenant, which in essence, represented the very presence of God. And so you had this veil. It was such a holy place that this veil separated the people from the Holy of Holies. And only once a year would the high priest be allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, the scriptures tell us that that veil was torn apart as if God was saying, no longer will there be anything to separate us from God. That veil is gone. It's been torn apart. In the same way, this is what happens at the baptism of Jesus. As soon as he comes up out of the water, the heavens are torn apart. The veil that separates us from God is torn asunder. And then this voice speaks. This voice speaks. And the voice calls out to Jesus, you are my son, the beloved with you. I am well pleased. That's verse 11. And that sounds so nice. I mean, it it sounds like, you know, a father saying, hey, man, you're my boy. I love you. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, you know, we can keep on reading. We we don't pause. We don't skip a beat. We hear those words. You're my son, the beloved with you. I'm well pleased. Let's get on with the story. But if you were a Jewish listener or reader of the text, you would have immediately thought of something else that would have been very much more ominous. It's kind of like uh, if I were to hum a tune like, what do you what what is that? Do you know the you know the song Jesus loves me? You just are, I didn't I didn't say that's what it was. I just kind of hummed a few bars. Have you ever uh, seen something you know or what it you know if I were to say, may the force be with you, you know immediately there's a whole you, you, there's a whole storyline that just those few words kind of pick up. Well, these words are like that for the average Jewish reader or listener at that time, if they heard these words, you are my son, the beloved with you, I'm well pleased, they would immediately have thought of God speaking to Abraham about his son Isaac and telling him that he is to take his beloved son with whom he is pleased and take him up on the mountaintop and sacrifice him to show his faith and his love of God. Wow. 
What's, what's that saying about Jesus? What, what is God speaking from heaven saying to Jesus? You're my, you're my son like Isaac was the son of Abraham. And I'm pleased with you because you're picking up all the wood and, and, and all the fire and you're going up on the hill to be sacrificed, you see. That's what they would have heard when they heard those words. Now, the words were spoken to Jesus, but obviously Mark records them for those who would hear. And then, of course, those words are repeated in Matthew and Luke. You see, God was suggesting that Jesus was to be the sacrifice. It's also, that little phrase is the exact phrase that is spoken this time more publicly to Peter, James, and John, when they go up on the top of that hill, the hill of transfiguration that's depicted in the painting in our sanctuary, where Jesus goes up there with Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured with Elijah and Moses, and Peter wants to stay up there. He wants to, oh, let's build three booths, and let's worship on top of the mountain, you know? But Jesus, he doesn't even say anything. He doesn't even respond to him. He, he, he responds by what he does. What he does is he quietly walks down the hill, and he confronts a boy that is possessed by demons. In other words, Peter wants to stay up on top of the mountain, but Jesus has somewhere else to go. And it's on that mountaintop, just before Jesus leads his disciples down into the valley, that these words are spoken, you are my son, the beloved with you, I am well pleased. That's where the sacrifice is going to occur, down in the valley. That's where Jesus is going to give of himself. He's going to give of himself in, in ministry and servanthood to people in need. These were not comforting words. This, God was not saying, hey, you're my boy and I love you very much. No, this was saying, I got a job for you to do and you better get ready for it because it won't be easy. You see, God was pointing the way for Jesus to go into a world of great need and danger. Now, that were not enough. <laughs> it seems to me that's plenty. That were not enough. As soon as Jesus comes up out of the water, Mark tells us that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Not, you know, the Spirit asked him if he wouldn't mind going on a little stroll in the wilderness. It doesn't say that, well, in a day or two, Jesus went into the wilderness. No, the Scriptures tell us that immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And what happened in the wilderness? That's where he was tempted by Satan, and that's where he was with the wild beasts. Not a pleasant place to be. And he's not there for just a few hours or for a weekend or for a week or even a month. He's there for 40 days. This is a real trial period. This is boot camp for Jesus. And it all occurs in the context of his baptism by John. Don't you see, Mark is painting a very different picture of Jesus' baptism because, you see, he's painting a very different picture of Jesus. Jesus is a suffering servant of God to Mark who shares the suffering of God's people. This uh, picture you see right now is uh, it's one artist's representation of the veil of Veronica by Domenico Fedi. Um, this, uh, this painting 
is a painting of the face of Jesus that appeared on this cloth, and it's it's one of the stations of the cross. Um, in the Catholic Church, there, I think there are like 15 stations of the cross. Uh, not all of them are in Scripture, and so for some Protestant churches, they don't use all the stations when they do uh, a service around the the stations of the cross. This is one of those that are not in that's not in the Scripture, and there's some indication by the very name of this woman that it's it's there for uh, for a purpose to, to teach something about Jesus. And let me explain. In fact, in fact, um, what 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 it is, it's. It's in on the Via Dolorosa when Jesus is carrying his cross. He falls several times, and one of the times he falls, and a woman comes up and she wipes his face with a cloth. And when she moves away and she looks at the cloth, she sees that his face, his the imprint of his face, is now on that cloth. If you've seen uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, um, uh, Mel Gibson is Catholic, and so that movie depicts all of all the stations of the cross that you would uh, learn about in the Catholic Church, and this scene is in that of the woman coming up to Jesus when he falls with the cross. She wipes his face. And if you look very closely, and you can easily miss it in the movie, if you look very closely, she's off in the background. Almost, you almost can't see her. But she's taken that cloth and she's draped it over her, her arm. And if you look very closely, you'll see that the image of Christ's face is on that cloth. Now, the reason I say that her name suggests that maybe she wasn't a real person, but really a person that was meant to kind of share a message. The name Veronica comes from two Latin words, vera and icon. Vera meaning true, icon meaning image. Veronica means true image, the true image of Christ. Now, you could say that means that face that's on that cloth is in fact, you know, kind of like the Shroud of Turin, that is actually Jesus. Or it could also mean this is the true image of Christ, Christ who suffers, Christ who has a crown of thorns, Christ who has blood dripping down from his forehead. That is the picture that Mark paints of Jesus in his gospel. That's why you don't, in Mark's gospel, you don't read about the wise men bringing expensive gifts. You don't even read about the shepherds coming off of the field from their sheep and coming to worship Jesus who is laying in a manger. You don't even hear about a baby Jesus in the gospel of Mark because Mark is writing to a persecuted church in Rome. This scripture that we've just read about his baptism, remember, that begins on the fourth verse of his gospel. Right in the very beginning of his gospel, he begins immediately telling you about the baptism of Jesus that shows that that, that he's going to be driven out into the wilderness and he's going to be a sacrifice. He's writing to a church that they can't worship like we do. They have to hide away in the catacombs and they know people that have been dragged to to the Colosseum and have lost their lives there. That's the church that he's writing to. They could care less about a little baby Jesus and about wise men bringing expensive gifts. Forget it. What they want to hear is about a God who's willing to suffer with them, who's willing to be with them in the catacombs and in the darkness and in the fear and in the anxiety that comes by being a disciple of Christ in such a troubled time and place. This is the Christ who speaks to the people in Rome. And that's the Christ that Marx shares a picture of. Mark is giving us a message about our own baptism as well. 
Mark quotes John in saying, I have baptized you with water, but he, meaning Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Matthew actually adds a few more words and has John saying he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, what what the Gospels are saying, not only Mark, but what the Gospels are telling us is that John baptized and cleansed the body of those who would come forth to be baptized, but Jesus is cleansing the heart, the inside, and that might take fire to do it. It's changing us from inside out. God is putting a fire in our hearts. Now, when I was baptized at the age of seven, I, was, I grew up a Southern Baptist in Mobile, Alabama, and uh, I was seven years old when I was baptized. Now, I'm not very tall now. You can imagine what I was like when I was seven years old. I had to stand on my tiptoes just to keep my nose above the water in the baptismal pool. I thought I was going to drown. To this day, I tell people I was, I was drowned a Baptist. <laughs> I was scared to death that I wasn't going to get out of that pool alive. Well, you know, that's one way to baptize people. You can dunk them in a pool or you can uh, sprinkle them. Uh, you can pour water on them, okay? Um, in some de- denominations, people are actually held under the water. I mean, held under the water until they struggle. You know, I had the anxiety before I went under. <laughs> in some denominations, they hold you down until you do feel the anxiety and the fear, and you struggle a little bit. And they'll even do that with babies, Little babies and put them under the baby and let them struggle a little bit. Why? Well, the point is to show that baptism is meant to remind us of the death of Christ so that we might participate in the life of Christ. Like I said, some some, uh, pastors do different things. Uh, Sometimes they'll baptize uh, in the water and they'll do it three times. One, two, three. Or sprinkling. I know Phil does this when he baptizes the baby, you know, three times. Baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what we often think of is it's the Trinity that's being represented by those three dunkings or those three sprinkles. But it's more than that. It, it's, it's meant to recall the three days Jesus spent in the grave after he was crucified. You see, baptism is a participation in the death of Christ so that we might experience the life of Christ. That is the role of baptism. It's not something that we do. It's something that's done to us. It's that that fire that's instilled within us. God baptizes us. But how we're baptized is we're baptized into death so that we might experience life. We are shown the way as Jesus showed us that going out into the wilderness and going from the mountaintop into the valley, going to people who are hurting and who are in need, that's the way to life. And when we try to avoid that, when we try to pretty it all up and paint blue skies and white clouds and we have little luncheons and we all go, isn't that really nice? And we go on our way and we never change our lives, then we miss the whole point of baptism. Baptism, therefore, is our entrance into the life of the church. And that's why in our sanctuary, our baptismal font stands at the very entryway into the sanctuary. Because baptism is the entrance into church membership. I hate that word. 
I, you know, if it were up to me, if I could change, I would ban the word member from the United Methodist Church, and for that matter, from any church. Because whenever I think of membership, I think of privilege. You know, you become a member of Sam's Club or Costco, and you get discounts. Well, you're allowed to even go in, you know. That's a privilege, you know, because you paid for the privilege, you know. You join a, you join a, a club, a country club, and if you're a member, you, you know, you get certain privileges. You can play golf on their golf course, or you can, uh, you know, eat in their restaurants, you know. It's a privilege to be a member, but that's not what membership in the church is all about. It's about responsibility. It's about where we're to go from here. That's why I do away with the word membership. I'd say, okay, you're baptized. Now you're a disciple of Christ. Now you're a follower of Jesus. And so now you can follow him from the mountaintop into the valley. Now you can follow him into the wilderness. You can follow him where you might not want to go. That's, that's what baptism is about. That's what discipleship is, is about. In fact, you know, the early Christians, they weren't really called Christians. They were called followers of the way. Followers of the way. What was the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said. In baptism, God puts a fire in our hearts, then sends us out in the world to be servants. That's our role as disciples. So you see, baptism doesn't make the road any easier. Sorry to tell you. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us for trying to remember our baptism by simply remembering the the niceties of the water. Help us to remember that the best way to remember our baptism is to follow you into the world where people are hurting. Amen.